EMSradio.com. EMS information for the next generation. The EMS Garage is a production of EMSradio.com. You can find us on Facebook. Just search EMS Garage. You can find us on Twitter at EMS Garage. Email us, emsgarage at gmail.com. Or call us, 303-720-6001. The EMS Welcome to the EMS Garage. It's the weekly podcast about pretty much nothing, but this week we're actually talking about something. Uh, I'm your host, Chris Montero, and today we have a pretty neat panel. We're going to talk about um, an article that was on gems.com, and we'll probably talk a little bit about other issues too, I'm sure. Uh, but thanks for joining us today. If you notice, I have a bit of a deep voice, deeper than normal maybe, uh, just a little bit of a bronchitis i've been fighting for a few weeks so sorry about that i promise i won't jump on and cough all over your ear as you're driving down the road in your ambulance or car wherever you're at or working out um i know many of you listen to us while you're working out and i enjoy that thank you very much it's a good job you work out it's good good for us that we do that so joining me first is mr james warmouth all the way from texas where it's hot i hear very hot yes yeah I'm sorry about that. That that stinks. Are you on duty today? I am actually not. And uh, uh, baby kept us up all night, but we no. I managed to get my rig set up right before uh, right before we went on. So nice. Well, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. I understand those I understand those le- wee little ones. That's awesome. Also joining us today is the author of the article we're going to be talking about this morning, Mr. Dennis Edgerly. Hello, sir. You've never been on the podcast. Um, I have not ever been on the podcast so uh thanks for the invitation right on and so tell us every time we bring somebody new on uh, the past 140 episodes or so we give people an opportunity to tell us who you are what you do your background a little bit so take it away what who are you what do you do where are you from ah very good um yeah i, I uh i'm dennis i currently work for swedish medical center the health one system um i run the paramedic program and do all the uh, education training through there uh, but I also have the opportunity to travel around and um, speak with people and meet folks at uh, conferences across the state, across the country. Um, and then they uh, uh, they let me write little snippets um, every now and then. So that's that's me, I guess, in a nutshell. Right on. And how long have you been in EMS? Uh, wow. Um, I think my first EMT certification was in 87. So 20-ish plus or minus years. Wow. So we I didn't realize we, we've been in it almost exactly, exactly the same amount of time. I didn't realize that. That's pretty cool. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. So um, I was I was reading on gems.com this past week and came across your article, and I went, man, I want to have Dennis on to talk about his article, More Than Just a Fall. And in the article, you, you talk about geriatric patients and you know the types of falls and what you should be considering. So what was your... Why did you decide to write something about that? Is that is that something that you enjoy writing about, or 
Um, well, I do. I, I enjoy talking about geriatrics. Um, and GEMS is pretty awesome. They kind of give me some leeway every other month. They let me put together kind of whatever I want to talk about. And uh, they kindly post it up on the web and let people <laughs> read it or dis, dis, uh, discard it, one of the two. Um, so I, I started uh, uh, looking through um, what I've written about and what I haven't talked about recently. And the paramedic students are currently in um, internship right now, all my students. And so they're, they're always coming into the office excited about talking about these different calls and events. And um, as I was talking to a couple of students, they were talking about um, some calls they had run. And this this whole uh, sequence or sequelae of events associated with falls kind of came to mind. And so I started uh, writing generically about just other considerations. And uh, um, I did what I could in 800 words or less. <laughs> gotcha. Um, well, I found it very interesting that you kind of paint the picture of, you know, it's about 45 minutes before the end of your shift and you, you know, get this call for somebody that, that falls. And um, in my opinion aren't aren't um geriatric patients just aged adults cured adults kind of like pediatrics are just small adults what I mean, there's really no different considerations you got to think about really or <laughs> oh wait i'm wrong yeah okay um no i guess it's important because i think that as our population ages we've really got to start thinking about this as providers and really look a little deeper than maybe what you were called for and i think that that's what makes us very interesting from the healthcare point of view is that we can maybe look at, look at situations differently and use our critical thinking skills as paramedics to, to take on a, um, a patient like this and say, Hmm, now she fell, but why did she fall? And that's, I think that's taking our education and training and, and just moving it into that next realm of how do we apply it? I agree. And when it comes to primary education stuff, especially, um, I get, I get a bit frustrated because when you look at our patient population, as you said, um, a large section of them, obviously depending on where you work, um, is going to be geriatric 65 or, or older. But when you look at the national paramedic curriculum and the EMT curriculum, the average courses spend what, maybe two hours in EMT school talking about geriatrics and, and maybe four hours in paramedic school talking about geriatrics. And then we're just expected to go out there and, and know all the nuances of this population. And, I think we're at a little bit of a disadvantage. Well, and I, and I think that it's also not only a disadvantage, but you have to take all of this this common body of knowledge. You know, you learned about atrial fibrillation, you learned about stroke, you learned about TIA, you learned about all these different types of things, and then start considering how you would apply that to a fall or a, a somebody that that passed out. Now, the the one thing I I did notice in your article that you didn't talk about because you talked about there are two types of falls in in a geriatric population. What about the what about the the pop and fall where they they feel something pop in their um, it's not really traumatic but well kind of is I guess but their their hip just breaks um, th- that happens not often but um, I wasn't sure if that if you considered that or what where that falls into those those two types of or those two categories the the trip and fall or the the pass out and fall as the mechanisms uh, I think I'd, it, it, I mean it's definitely traumatic but I probably would lump that um, depending on a definition more of a mechanical type fall um, and you're right I kind of the limited space that I had to write I wanted to um, just talk about the fact that there was, um, you know, either something medically caused this person to pass out, basically, or something physically happened. They tripped over their fuzzy bunny slippers or, or you, know, you know, the hip popped out or a leg spontaneously snapped and, and fell to the ground. So, I'd, yeah, definitely consider that, you know, kind of in that mechanical realm. I just I don't, didn't feel I had space or time to go too far into the trauma 
for mechanical stuff. Oh, I guess I didn't realize you only had 800 words. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it seems like a lot. And then you get it done and you're like, man, I, I have to cut, 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 cut. Um, so James, what are your, what are your impressions of the article and what are your impressions of geriatrics in general? Well, sorry about that. Um, you know, with, with geriatrics in general, especially for us, that's that's a large portion uh, of our primary care base, and I imagine for for a lot of people that would be the same case. Um, in, in general, just, just um, first off, uh, to answer your question. Uh, I thought the article was fantastic, um, but but speaking from a geriatric standpoint, you know, one of the biggest problems that, that especially with geriatric care and geriatric falls and things like that, uh, has to do with um, the managed care in the nursing facilities where um, I've had people, I've had nurses tell me, you know, he's fallen four times in the last three days, but we can't get a doctor's order that says, you know, to put a, uh, a, a waist restraint on his wheelchair. So he's going to keep falling out of his wheelchair. And it's like, you know, really we can't do any, you know, we can't do anything to help these patients from getting injured because no one will sign an order saying, yeah, put a waist belt on him. And I think it's really sad that we have to wait for a doctor's order to be able to do something like that. I agree. I've seen other things in, in nursing homes or other places similar where um, they will just kind of put them back in bed and then wait to hear from some higher power as far as what they're supposed to do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, fell three hours ago, picked him up off the floor, put him back in bed. And three hours later, the doctors, oh, yeah, go ahead, send him to the hospital. Well, and I guess that's more of a frustration too for us as we look at patients in the in the nursing home realm. But you know, Dennis, I was going to ask you: Do you see? And this is kind of a takeoff from where we were, but do you see where paramedics in the future could be really being more proactive? So we're not. So maybe we we go to a home and we help assess an elderly person uh, before they fall. And is there, is there a way for us to maybe start doing some preventative um, medicine? I, I don't want to call it medicine, but treatments and, and assessments of, of elderly people to help them through their, so that we can keep them in their home longer and make sure that we can go out and maybe something as simple as a 12 lead would have made sure that this, this lady didn't fall and we get her into the right doctor so that she doesn't, so that they can fix her AFib or we go in and we make sure that the throw rug is laid down correctly and, and it's not, uh, it doesn't flip up so she doesn't fall on the fuzzy bunny slippers or her, or her throw rug or something like that. Is there, is there a place for us in EMS to be doing stuff like that or, you know, or we should we just be more reactive all the time? I, I love that thought. I think that's a absolutely fantastic thought. Um, and I think it, a couple points in the, the curriculum, and I try and reinforce it in the classes, is the statement of we should never pass up a teaching moment. Uh, so when we do get into the house, um, when you know someone calls us and we see something that's potentially dangerous, like the the, the rug that's not taped down, or the uh, the four or five extension cords, or the oxygen tubing that's stretched across the floor, we can make suggestions as far as how we should. Uh, um, make that a safer place for them. I think it would be way cool if if EMS could do some type of a role where we could do almost like almost like you're describing like a, almost a welfare check to just kind of or a home health care visit. I guess um, we run into I think a lot of problems with that though. It's first when you look at some medics, it's not the cool call, uh, so they may not want to you know, go out and just do a physical exam on um, Mrs. Smith. 
Um, and then second, you know, who, who pays for that? Who sponsors that? How do we get notified? I think there's a lot of logistical things, but we are in the public. We are in their homes. We interact with them on a daily basis. And so I think the potential for that to do, to happen is, is there. I think that'd be way awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think I think probably one of the I think you touched on probably the two of the biggest points uh, that kind of prevent this is is one the company the company looks at it as a whole and it says um, well there's no real monetary benefit there and it shouldn't be based on monetary benefit but let's face it it's a company they're going to look at it that way and second. You have people, and, and I've touched on this before, who, especially people who are new to the company, who come in and they're like, oh, yeah, blood and guts, code three. And it's like, we're, we're going to go assess a 90-year-old lady who has no complaint, really. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I always look at those people and I'm like, what did you think we did? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, and but I, I guess, um, at least from as far as the education goes or training goes for paramedics we need to maybe start looking at that i I don't think that a four-hour class in geriatrics and paramedic school can really prepare us for all these eventualities i think that again it goes into those critical thinking skills and all that stuff but how do we how do we start changing what we do um as far as educators and definitely for you dennis but um for other people how do they start looking at how they can take paramedics and and make them start thinking about the entire patient and not thinking about that acute episode where they, where it's just about this one thing. And I think that oftentimes as, as EMS providers, we're taught to, to look at this one thing, fix it, go home. And I think we, how do we, how do we start making that a bigger, broader, um, more educated realm where we can start looking at the whole person and the whole uh, medical issues that they have going on that's a that's a great question i i think through education and training there's a there's a lot of tools you know when you look at uh, scenario-based stuff and case studies um and um uh, individual reviews of cases some some pbl some problem problem-based learning for, for providers or students there's a lot of avenues for us to take to get them to start thinking um about that i think the other thing that at least i've noticed is that um the experienced medic uh, tends to probably over years of stumbling um, across things, um, they, they kind of get it a little bit later and they start putting it together. But, but you know, how many years does it take for someone to actually develop that? But I, I think we can definitely start fostering that through education, primary education and CE education. And I, I definitely think that, that, that that's the big problem is when we, when we're talking about, you know, how, what you're taught in school, it's like, uh, you're given a scenario and this person has AFib and so we treat the AFib and then we're at the hospital and it's all done. And one of the things that I like to do when I teach little CE classes is I give them, I throw them a patient with, um, you know, one or two, uh, acute problems, but also throw a few chronics in there. And it's like, okay, you need to manage all of these as a whole, uh, not just the ones that are going to kill them right now, because uh, they have they have several problems that are affecting them right now. You know, true, they're not immediate, maybe not one or two of them, but we still need to treat that and, and manage it appropriately. Right, and all those underlying problems they have are potentially making their new event worse or at least more difficult to manage. So when we think about the, well, and I guess then, because you had said something earlier about, you know, it's the trial and error method. And do we really want to, um, 
do we really want to have that trial and error kind of method or is it something that we should, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's something that should be built in. Don't you think is primary, you know, without making the course, well, you know, I'm, I guess I'm a, I'm a bigger advocate of, of making paramedics at least in associates and eventually moving toward this bachelor level of, of education. Uh, but how do we, how do we start ingraining into them to have, or into, not only the current providers, but future providers, how to, how to start thinking outside that box. And, and again, I think it's an excellent question and it, it definitely starts in the primary, uh, primary classroom, you know, with, you know, difficult, difficult or interesting presentations. Uh, I'm a huge fan. And the more I see it work, um, in different venues across the country, uh, simulation based training and having people run through scenarios, but, but then the scenarios have to be, you know, different than like, um, the, the cardiac AHA mega code stuff we do where, um, you, you're right. We have a patient that's AFib, you go in, you treat the AFib and then Shazam, you're at the, the hospital. The scenarios have to be built uh, for students to think about, well, what are the, um, electrolytes and how long have they been in AFib and, you know, what is their, their, their clotting factors like? And, um, and it, that just has to be fostered, uh, and it needs to begin, you're right, in, in primary education, which is, which is tricky. And I'm not sure there's a silver bullet that is going to fix it all at once. Do you think that we could start even earlier than that and start looking at EMTs? And as we, you know, start fostering that thought process very early on and saying, you know, you're, we're teaching you how to do this, but here's some things you should consider as you, as you start going through your education and your, and your training. And maybe, maybe that's where we start. We start with the with the baby EMTs and then we move them, move them through. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's for me, I, it's something I'm very passionate about, um, furthering our education and how do we, how do we take that and become good practitioners and clinicians, uh, that looks beyond that one incident. And I, I don't, I agree with you. I don't know how you, how you do it other than, um, one, one education and training program at a time. Uh, because there's really there's really not a big huge outcry for it right now, but I, I eventually think that it could it should it could and should become the the wave of the future for our industry. I think that there's a few specific problems, and 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 these are kind of the things that I attribute to why why stuff like this hasn't worked as far as it has. Um, and one of the biggest ones I attribute directly to is is the clinical process when you're when you're going through your clinicals and in preparation of, of taking your exam, is you know you have a list of skills that you must accomplish and you must get these skills done in order to to get passed. So it's you know it kind of ingrains in that mindset. I need to I need to I need to go do this many intubations, and I need to go do this and this and this. And then you get with you get with some paramedics, and I was lucky. I got with some very good paramedics when I did my clinicals. But there are some paramedics who aren't, you know, they, they may be good paramedics, but they're not that great at teaching. And so you get some of those paramedics where it's like, well, you know, we're gonna go, we're gonna go treat this problem. We're gonna go home, and it kind of just reinforces that whole concept of we're gonna get these skills taken care of, and then you know we're not gonna worry about anything else because that's what you need. And um, you know, I think that's one of the biggest problems is. When we're talking about, I always tell people, you know, you, you run clinicals with, with, you know, several different paramedics and you try to take uh, the best attributes of each person and kind of build that into yourself. But a lot of times what we get are the, uh, the bad habits, the, the shortcuts and things like that. I, I would agree. And I think it takes a, a special uh, type of uh, preceptor, whether it's in the hospital or in the field, to post the event after the call is done. 
um, even if it is a straightforward call uh, to sit with the student and say, all right, so this was pretty straightforward, but, and then kind of talk about the, the what ifs and how would you determine and, and, and how would you put that differential. And I think that's a, a pretty special um, type of a um, preceptor. And I, they're out there. I definitely have a bunch that work with us that have the ability to take students and foster that, that critical thinking. The other thing, though, that we run into, especially with busy hospital systems and busy pre-hospital, pre-hospital systems, um, is, is time. You know, when they run, you know, five back-to-back calls, as soon as they hit the hospital, they run another call. Um, it sometimes is difficult um, and sometimes physically exhausting to go back um, and look at all those calls, either to remember exactly uh, or to, of the nuances of the call or, like I said, after five calls, sometimes you just want to do nothing for a little bit. Right. And, well, and that, I guess that, that goes on to say the furtherance of what we do is, is important. You can't just drop it once you, once you leave the education and go, okay, I'm done. And you have to, you have to dig in and and find some things. So, um, now I wanted to see if we could move on to a different topic. And I don't know if, uh, if you're quite ready for this, we, we, you know, I, I love talking about, excuse me. See, there's that uh, stuff coming in. Uh, I, I, I love talking about all things EMS and I was just, uh, looking online this past week and, and found this article on EMS1.com about California County issues, scathing report on emergency responses and talks about how, um, the, this, this report by a panel, a watchdog panel found that 70% of the fire department calls are medical related, whereas just 4% are fire related. Uh, even so having a typical engine at 500,000 responding to medical emergencies may not be the best for the system taxpayer. So the, the quote says the quote in the article says taxpayers can no longer afford to fund the status quo using firefighter paramedics and fire equipment as respond as first responders to non-police emergencies, which I don't understand that, that vernacular there is unnecessarily costly when less expensive paramedics on ambulances possess the skills needed to address 96% of the calls that are not fire related. The report comes uh, giving more scrutiny to firefighters in, especially in California right now, when they're going through huge budget budget woes and where they have six figures and all kinds of things. I I know I don't I've never made six figures as a paramedic, but uh, I don't know. I mean, is that? Gee, oh man, I I hate to I hate to go on the the fire bandwagon here, but uh, they. I I can see the point of both sides on this, and I think that I know as a as a paramedic on an ambulance, it was always nice to have the the firefighter there or the fire department there because I think that they they have an important role in first response when we we look at the downtimes for for patients exactly like this elderly patient or something like that, but looking at their their they're more interspread through the city and we could cover a city with fewer ambulances because we knew that the fire department would be there first and could slow down the response or do different things. So boy, I, I definitely understand it. Maybe, maybe the, maybe the different, so react to that and then we'll, we'll talk more. What do you guys think about that? Well, I'm, I'm just kind of curious about it. Um, I, I haven't had a chance to read that article. I didn't know it was coming up, but one of the, uh, at least the way you described it, one of the things that came to me uh, as you were describing it was that they were basically saying, okay, let's say, for example, we pay a, a standard paramedic on the box $10 an hour just for 
easy rounding. But we pay a firefighter paramedic $14 an hour. So if we're going to a routine medical call, and I, I use that word pretty loosely, routine, but we're going to a medical call, uh, is it really necessary to get that $14 an hour paramedic firefighter involved when we could just send a $10 an hour uh paramedic without a fire certificate um and 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 if that's the case i can if that's what they're trying to say then i can kind of see that in a way because um you know i've always been a fan of the split system where you you know you can cross train if you want but you're not required to i have a you know i have a problem with systems that force you to cross train and force you to be both because i think that the mental the there's a big mental separation between being a fireman and being a paramedic and uh I think that's at least to, when you described it, that's what it sounded like to me was, you know, do we really need to send this this higher paid person to this call when uh, a paramedic who doesn't have a fire cert can do the job just fine? Yeah, and I, uh, I think it actually goes, um, you know, even beyond that. Um, I just got that link. Thanks, Chris. Um, I think it goes beyond that uh, to... Just physical um, operation of apparatus. Um, I think that fire-based EMS systems can work really well, and I've seen them work uh, really, really well. Um, but I, I think the other question that agencies have to look at is when the call comes in, do we need to uh, send the fire truck and the ambulance and the battalion chief um, for this lady that fell? And sometimes they do. We, we know for extrication and getting people out and, and cardiac arrest, we need a bunch of hands on, on scene. But I think it goes beyond just... Um, just the hourly wage it's it's the physical operation of the machinery as well well and that that's a very good point in a time when it costs you know almost four dollars a gallon for diesel and things like that 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 does play into part of that but i also think that part of the part of the report also said that you know they could they could pretty much buy four or five ambulances for the price of one engine which you know makes sense but i guess the point that gets lost is that even if you bought four or five more ambulances, you would still have to staff them somehow. And there still has to be, so if you're not sending a fire truck to, and again, probably going back to this education and training idea that if the, if the fire paramedic got on scene on the engine and said, you know, this person could be, could be deferred to a different type of treatment, or we could send them to uh, a non-urgent or an urgent care setting, or maybe they need just a primary care. Or if we could, if we could decrease the resource need that way and start allowing paramedics to think um, and and make decision and help patients navigate the healthcare system and make decisions, maybe then we wouldn't need as many resources. And um, I I just find it interesting when there's a there's a report that just comes out and just slams whatever whatever industry because I don't you know fire based EMS based third service whatever it is i don't i don't think that that's necessarily always taking all the sides into account and i think it's important to perhaps look at how we do things and as budgets get tighter and things like that maybe maybe there is a different way but you know when the union starts getting involved and saying oh that's wrong or whatever then then maybe we all just need to take a step back and go okay there there the reports got validity in certain ways, but how do we how do we move that further, and how do we how do we take what we do and and really start looking at being efficient and being flexible and responding to the needs of our community, versus just taking a stand that no it it can't change. So, boy, I again I like I said I see both sides of this this article, and uh, I don't know I 
I and I agree with you, Dennis. I've seen really good fire-based EMS systems, and we've seen other systems that don't necessarily always work. But how do we, again, in this time of of change, how do we how do we go through and and really start making a dent in not responding to everything? And maybe using maybe using a priority medical dispatch is a good way to do that. You could you could help people self-refer that way. Um, I guess why one problem with priority medical dispatch is it doesn't have a, it doesn't give it a score for pain. And I think oftentimes that we, we underestimate the, the power of pain in somebody's treatment and in their, and in their overall health. So if somebody's in pain for a long time, that can have a lot of, that can grossly affect how they, how their treatment and their, their recovery goes down the road. So, eh, I don't know. I mean, like I said, I, I can see all sides of this, but it's just, I just found it interesting that it was scathing. And you, you know, one of the, one of the problems with priority dispatching, we actually had that implemented in a city where I worked 911 for a while and it didn't take the public very long to realize that if they said, well, my shoulder hurts, they got a BLS truck. And if they said I was having chest pain, they got an MICU truck. And so it it got to where every call was dispatched out for chest pain or shortness of breath, which which in our system made it an MICU call because you had to find the cause of the shortness of breath. And uh, you get there and they're like, oh, I fell down and hurt my leg. Yeah, but you told us you were having chest pain. You know, and it, it just came down to they thought they would get a quicker response and they knew they'd get a paramedic if they said they were having chest pain or shortness of breath. That's funny. I've actually had patients call the ambulance, and when you when you get there, and, you know, not necessarily complaint based, but when you get there and talk to them, uh, they'll tell you. I've had a, a couple people tell me that the reason they called the ambulance is they didn't have to wait in line at the triage desk. That they knew we went in through the other door, and they knew they'd get treated faster. So it is interesting how people uh, kind of learn their system, even though we don't think of it that way sometimes. Yeah, we think it's like this big secret on how we do it, but they. I think the the patients and the the users of the system learn to navigate it quickly, and they learn to figure out how to uh, how to how to utilize the system to their best advantage. Not always necessarily to our best advantage. <laughs> it's right. just, it's funny, you know, because I uh, I knew that there. Um, gosh, I've heard of several times where the the patients waiting in the ER and they're like, oh, they're just frustrated, so they go outside go out the front door of the ER, call an ambulance, ambulance comes, picks them up, brings them back on the other side of the hospital. And now they're, at least they're in the emergency room. So it's kind (laughs) of, I mean, it's, it's funny that patients learn how to navigate that. But, but if we had a system in place to say, you know, those patients are a high priority because of this, um, Dennis, don't, when you teach paramedics or when you train them about pain and, and relieving pain, you know, I remember when I went through school, it was like, Oh, you can give morphine, but gee, you know, that's, you know, that it, you don't want to, you don't want to give too much. And it seems like over time we've really changed our, our idea about pain. And now it's like, you know, get rid of the pain. You know, you can, you can get rid of it up until the point of where they're not breathing, which is probably a bad thing, but you know, help, help people feel better through their pain. And really, you know, I think the mantra in my class was, well, pain never killed anybody. And, but I think that pain really does have an out, out, effect. So how do you train or teach paramedics now, maybe differently than maybe you did in the past? Or have you always said, pain's bad, get rid of it all? No, I think there has been a, a kind of a shift. Because I remember too, I'm being, uh, going, going through school and they said, we want to you know, take the edge off of a pain. You know, then you come into this, well, is a, a two pain not as severe as a four pain? And maybe I should go one 
Um, but yeah, and the Metro physician advisors that we work with in my medical director through school, um, for the program that I work with, um, they're pretty aggressive with pain. And I tell students um, sh- straight out um, that our goal for pain control is no pain, to eliminate the pain uh, completely, uh, to find some mechanism to do that. And we talk about the long-term effects about how absence of pain um, can maybe help people heal better. Um, it stops other um, you know, events from, from potentially taking place. Um, so th- there's huge benefits. And I don't have any specific literature data right in front of me, but I, b- I believe the data shows pretty strongly that the elimination of pain and the maintenance of keeping people pain-free um, is, is hugely beneficial. I, I think when you go into to hospitals and look at hospitals, their ability to be accredited or remain accredited, um, most of them are required to have some type of pain scale and evaluation, and they have those little charts with uh, faces on them that people have to pick their face of how they feel in pain. And then the hospital is obligated to then eliminate that pain and so I, I try and reinforce that in the program. Short answer to your question, I guess. Well, so as a as an EMS director for my service, and looking at at the future of EMS, how do we how do we adopt more of that healthcare model? Then how do we start looking at ourselves as this healthcare entity, and really and and looking at things like that, looking at how we help patients because you know most most of the time the only time i get complaints is when somebody was rude to a patient i don't really ever they people know when you're rude to them they don't know when you're killing them so how do you how do we adopt this model where we can start evaluating ourselves that way versus oh gee our iv success rate's 90 percent who cares really we we help people in pain how do we how do we evaluate that is there do you think that there's a model out there have you seen any models out there I don't think I've necessarily seen a, an EMS model per se, other than our, our good scale of 10 um, to evaluate that. I don't know of any pre-hospital people using a, um, you know, a, a face recognition. I'm sure there might be somebody somewhere doing that. And I think the other problem, we're a little bit um, behind in what the hospital might be able to do is, and it takes, and we can get it. It just takes proactivity on our part is to figure out how the patient comes out in the end. So the fact that we removed all the patients in the pre-hospital setting, uh, did that make any difference in their ER stay? And did that then make any difference in how long they actually spent um, admitted as a patient? Uh, we just the patient felt better and then we're, we're done. So I think following through and getting more definitive long-term patient care may help with that as well. Well, I was thinking more on the QAQI side at the after after everything's said and done that we come back and also evaluate it that way and look at it. Did we as an agency and did we as providers help fix this person's problem and or or our patients' problems throughout the whole year or throughout this whole quarter and and how do we improve on that? So more of a I guess kind of a two-step process where a we train all the providers to make sure that we're getting rid of pain and then b we evaluate how well they're doing at that because you know we we want to evaluate how how well we provide service. And in the absence yeah I, again that's tough. It's easy to count successful IVs. Uh, I think it's a little bit more difficult to to go back and evaluate. I mean we you can obviously look and you know, look at patients that are in pain and see if they recognize the pain and if they treated the pain. And um, But then, you know, through documentation, which persists into a whole other realm of education, continuing education is appropriate, um, thorough documentation. Did they actually go back and reevaluate and document what the next pain scale was? And then how did they follow up with, with that? I think it can be extracted a little bit more tediously, but I think it can definitely be done. And then, you know, the, of course, the, the battle is you're, you're fighting the system itself as a whole because, you know, as 
as we already know, you know, most companies that, you know, their statistics involve how many, how many calls, how many calls have we run? How many no responses have we had? Um, you know, how many IVs did you get it? The, the statistics that they draw and that they use are, are, are not the ones that we want, but, you know, you're, you're in a situation where you're, you're fighting the system. So it becomes a, you have to find new and inventive ways of doing things to, to achieve what you need almost. Good point. Good point. So, well, and I, I think that we, again, going into this healthcare realm, that this is just one area where we can really improve upon the systems and things that we do. And it's not, it's not just looking at pain, but it could be, it could be many other things that we, we evaluate because you're right, Dennis, it's very easy to go. "Hmm, We had X number of IVs. We were successful at Y number of IVs and here's our success rate. Um, but it really is meaningless because even the hospital doesn't track that, you know, they, they get, they stab somebody 20 times to get the IV because it's important for that patient. It's not that, you know, we, we did it twice and, oh, gee, we failed. So let's, let's not try again. And so I, I don't know. I, I guess when I think through my career too, that one of the, and I wanted to bring this point up earlier that the pain thing has changed because even early in our career, it was like, oh, don't give, don't give any meds for abdominal pain. And uh, I remember I got yelled at by an ER doc once. I'm like, well, they were in pain. Why wouldn't I give them something for their abdominal pain? It's going to come back. (laughs) So, you know, I'm like, or you could give them Narcan if you really want to try and test where it's at. But, uh, I think that physicians over time too have learned that, um, and I think we kind of get scan happy in medicine. So they, they just scan it anyway and just go, Ooh, let's, let's go, let's stick them through the CT and see what it is or, you know, run an ultrasound on it or something. So when I think the technology thing in the hospital is a huge component as well, you go back a couple decades, and the emergency physician to evaluate um, abdominal pain or potentially hot abdomen, it depended upon their ability to do a physical assessment and reproduce that pain. Good point. And if we were if we were to give them something in a pre-hospital setting and take that away, in the absence of bedside you know CT scanners or bedside ultrasounds, now we we really crippled the ER physician because there was not a lot they could they could do evaluation wise. Uh, but in today's today's emergency medical realm, heck, they have a uh, pre-hospital ultrasounds that paramedics are running around ultrasounding bellies in the ambulance. So, uh, yeah, they don't have to be in pain anymore to fix their problem. Good point. I can't wait for the, I can't wait for ultrasound to become more relevant in our field. We had a, we had a gentleman on, um, talking about ultrasound. Gosh, this was about a year ago and he was doing some research in Australia and the, the, they have ultrasound technology that can actually identify that can they can use it on the head and identify strokes and they they said that this is the next big thing and it's coming and so i think ultrasound will be a cool new tool diagnostically for paramedics but it doesn't necessarily have to be you know again it's just another tool in the toolkit always rely on your hands and your all of your all of your assessment skills because those are very those are way more important rely on your gut too because that's important but uh just giving us the ability to to look at patients differently and and i think that that's the other thing that even as, as you and i are um been in this business a long time the the technology has changed it's amazing the things that we can now monitor on a patient that we could never do before uh, and i even look at things like the mobile istat lab and we can run we can run troponins on a patient in the ambulance now so mm-hmm. it's becoming more and more popular i don't i don't know how less it's not very um you know it's still a little expensive but 
I think as time continues, we'll we'll eventually see where we can run proponents in somebody's house and you know help help determine do do these people need to go to the cath lab or can they just go to the other hospital that can just monitor them things like that. So uh, and it's just interesting to see um, how how we've changed our our skill practice over time. So any any last thoughts or, or comments? I'm just going to piggyback on that, Chris. I think it's important that even though we get all these tools and all this new stuff uh, to kind of wrap around and finish everything, I don't think anything replaces that ability to critically think. So you can look at the, you know, we talked about putting it all together and critically thinking about all the what's in the house. It's easy to look at um, an ultrasound and then a cardiac monitor and then the troponin values um, and the other ISTAT values, depending on which card you're using, and have a bunch of numbers. But the ability to synthesize that and put it, it all together and come up with the patient that says, yeah, you're looking pretty good, but based on all these numbers, you know, and kind of postulate what could be yeah, and recognize those, those patients. Otherwise you're right. They're just really fancy tools. We have in the toolbox and we can do some really fun stuff and that's it. Yeah. Because I'd really hate to see our industry become parrots where we just call the doc and go, here's all the things I see on the monitors that are in my rig. Now, what would you like me to do next? And I, I really think that you're right. Critical thinking is very important for our industry and making sure that we, we can do that. And I think I even said uh, recently on the show that it would be nice if we could develop a psychological assessment for paramedics where we could really figure out, you know, what is the, how do I determine if this person is going to be a good paramedic when they're all done? And how do I, how do I make sure that this is the right person that should go through paramedic school because of X, Y, and Z. And it's more than just a formula. It's, it's about their ability to critically think it's about their ability to team play this way. It's about their, you know, there's a, there's many things that go into that. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you that it, you know, we've still got to continue that critical thinking. So James, uh, any last thoughts from you? Well, First off, I agree with both of y'all. I think that the additional tools would be fantastic, but you know the the ultimate problem is it, it doesn't it doesn't matter how many tools we have if you know you can't get your your CFO or your company owner to to actually invest in those tools. So so that creates a problem in which you know we we and there are a couple of situations in my company where it's like you know we would love to have this tool, but you know the company doesn't feel that it's financially uh, advantageous and like it or not that's the way companies are run it's it has to be financially advantageous uh, the other problem the other problem is you know I, I i love the idea of additional monitoring equipment and things like that but then you ultimately end up with like like you said a, a parrot situation in which you know it's like okay well we've got this this and this we need to find out what we need to do or you have specific protocols that say for example, if their O2 sat is below 96%, you must put them on oxygen even if they're not short of breath. And you know, I have a real problem with things like that because I feel I should be able to treat my patient, not a monitoring device. And and so that just kind of creates that little battle in there of yes, I want more, but I have to I have to fight for you know, I have to fight really hard for it just just to be able to to treat my patients accordingly. And, and I agree with you, and I think that the, just the growth of the profession, uh, because if you look back where we came from, and as a profession, we're not horribly old. When you look at the original white paper in, what, 66? Um, we're, we're not horribly old as a profession. And so, and when we started out, it was truly kind of a reactive, just kind of do this. So I think as we grow and mature and develop and as, as, a, as a profession and as providers, um, hopefully that stuff will kind of start to fall in line, I hope. 
Well, I, I think you're right. I think it will. It just, it's going to take time. And uh, man, I don't know. I don't know if I'm getting, I don't know if I'm getting too old to fight the battle anymore. <laughs> I don't know. It, maybe it's just easier to go, you know, sell stuff on the beach somewhere. Uh, anyway, just teasing. Um, Dennis, thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate it. I, I hope you'll come on again. This was, I love, actually, I love this format where there's just three or four of us and we're just sitting around talking about stuff like this because I think that normal sometimes we have you know as many as 15 people on this podcast and it could be kind of overwhelming so i appreciate the ability for all of us to give our thoughts and, and input because it's uh it definitely makes it more fun so dennis how can people find you or how can they write you if you wish or send you email hopefully not they, they won't send you hate mail they send only that to me so where do they where can they find you or find out more information about you uh, sure uh, the office uh, the health one office has the website health um, I think I have a link to me there somewhere, somehow. Uh, they can always get me email. Um, is always open. Uh, it's it's long, but it's dennis.edgerly at healthonecares.com, all spelled out. I think they tried to make our email addresses as long as they possibly could. Um, and then uh, through GEMS, uh, the gems.com uh, website, um, there's a, a link to me through gems.com. So if you read that article or any of the articles that um, I posted up there, uh, they have links back to my, my email. And yeah, I'd love to hear from folks and talk to people and um, get different thoughts and viewpoints from different places in the country and world. It's kind of fun. Right on. Well, thanks for coming on. And uh, I'll, some, some point would love to have you back on and talk more about just any issue. I don't care. It sounds like you, you love EMS as much as we do. We're kind of geeky that way. EMS geeks, if you will. Uh, James Warmoth, where can people find out information about you or, or read your blog? Uh, they can find me at yellowrubberducky.squarespace.com, and that's just basically a link farm for all of my various things. There's a, I've got my Facebook page linked up on there, so you can find me there and friend me if you choose. And there's also an email address where you can send me hate mail and fun stuff. Again, they only send hate mail to me, so it's okay. <laughs> well, thank you guys for coming on, and thanks for thanks for being a part of our day. My name is Chris Montero. I'm the Geeky Medic on all the websites. We're still working on our video streaming, so we're going to be working more on that. We're going to be coming to you next week live, Thursday night, at, oh gosh, 8, 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. And we'll be on vocal at V-O-K-L-E dot com. You can watch us there, listen to us, give us. You can actually send us text messages and and instantly interact with our panel. And uh, if you like this format and you think that it's worthy, send me an email. EMSGarage at gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Stitcher, Twitter, everywhere. So thanks for joining me this week. Join us next week when we talk more about issues that concern you in EMS. Have a great day, night, weekend, or shift, or whatever you do.